Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Playful Podcast. Today's episode, our guest is Nick Tedesco, who is the president and CEO of the National Center for Family Philanthropy. This conversation is delightful, and he will share stories about his work and the trajectory of his career, which included time as a wealth manager and a really interesting moment where he went from working as a deputy director at a nonprofit organization, running programs and raising money to being tapped on the shoulder and asked to go work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and joining that team and helping launch the Giving Pledge, which is a well-known and well-regarded effort in philanthropy for people of the greatest wealth to sign a pledge that they're going to give away most or all of it um, in their lifetime. So that's really fun. And uh, we both love chocolate. So we um, have some serious chocolate ice cream. So stay around to the end of the conversation to hear how we navigate (laughs) a story of impact and eating some delicious chocolate ice cream from Taharka Brothers, our new sponsor. Thanks a lot, everybody. You're listening to The Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. Let's jump right in. Hey, folks. Welcome back to The Playful Podcast. Another fun episode, another fun conversation with a changemaker. Today, Nick Tedesco is joining us. He is the president and CEO of the National Center for Family Philanthropy. And it's fun. I look, you know, looking back and and catching up on his CV, I've known him since a few jobs ago. So it's going to be fun to talk about his career and trajectory and change making and really a beautiful place where he's landed, where he's having a real significant impact and including uh, a recent uh, conversation that happened um, at one of the Smithsonian museums um, on the mall in DC that uh, was, I think, really timely um, for the moment. So Nick, if you would, um, please say hi and tell us a little bit about yourself. What would you want the audience to know first and foremost about you? Well, first, thank you, Christine. It's wonderful to be here. And uh, I've been admiring your podcast from afar. So it's wonderful to be a guest. So thank you for thinking of us. Absolutely. I've actually, you're making it sound um, like I've been very genteel about it. I think I've been kind of almost not hounding you, but I've been, we've been talking about this moment for a few months. And so I'm really glad it has happened. You have such an important role and a, a perspective in the field that is really valuable. Well, you have indeed been lobbying. I have been a reluctant podcast guest, but I'm here. I'm excited and we're going to eat some ice cream together. Yeah, I was going to say ice cream may have. And in fact, folks, when um, Nick and I were talking in advance, as I do with all the guests about, you know, getting ready in general for the content, we, of course, do talk about ice cream. And Nick pulled up a website with some ice cream flavors on it. We got into some pretty detailed conversation about not just chocolate, but what kinds of chocolate. And I really related to that. So the other thing really fun today, folks, is that a ice cream sponsor we've had once on before is back and sent, Nick, if your package look anything like mine, six pints showed up on my doorstep. And so we'll be good for, I don't know, five or six days at least. It'll last the weekend. It's quite impressive. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So tell us about the National Center for Family Philanthropy. Wonderful. Well, the National Center for Family Philanthropy is a Network of philanthropic families who are committed to learning and growing together. We're a 25-year-old organization, and we center the conversations with families on the principles of effectiveness. Our goal is to, first and foremost, elevate a conversation on what it means to be effective in the practice of family philanthropy, and then work to prepare philanthropic families to realize the possibilities, the potential of what it means to make a commitment to give back. And so we provide programs and services. We are network weavers and we provide support to philanthropic families and their partners. 
who are really looking to continue to grow in their practice. I love it. I'm going to just dive right into something that I wonder about, which is regarding play and your specific role right now. I think we all have a sense, we all have families of some different definition and size and type and age and all of that. And family dynamics is that's a concept we're all familiar with. I'm wondering in your role dealing with siblings, generations, spouses, all kinds of family constructs, how does play help you into and around conversations that could be difficult to just interesting and where people have different perspectives, for example, about what to do with the money, how to give it away and what kind of impact the group or individuals in the group want to have? It's a great question. And it's really inspiring to be able to partner with families. Families hold special bonds. And in many ways, we get to be invited into the very intimate moments of family conversations and help families work through their differences and find common ground. These can be difficult conversations. They can be emotionally charged conversations. A lot of times you're working through trauma. You're working through assumptions, assumptions that often aren't true, but are holding you back from realizing the full possibilities of what it means to work together towards a common goal. And so play in many ways allows us to first take it out of the personal, to be able to use some tools and techniques that allow people to look beyond themselves, to be able to leverage the imagination in a way that actually kind of returns you to purpose. It allows you to ask the question of why. It reminds you of what's important. And it brings some of the joy, if not the whimsy, kind of back into what can often feel arduous in the work. Do you have a specific tool or tactic or activity that comes to mind that or that you like, oh man, that one always works. Or I love when I get to pull that one out of the hat. We use a lot of different tools. One that comes to mind is uh, a set of resources from 2164, which is an extraordinary partner that many in the sector leverage. They have a set of cards, picture your legacy, that have beautiful images. And we often will invite families to look through those cards and select the images and talk through what those images mean to them and what it represents in their commitment to do good in the world. And that really, again, brings them to a place that is not about the relationship to one another as a family, but their relationship to the world and what they aspire to see in the world. And it really allows them to, again, use the imagination and come back to a place of the why are we doing this? And so the Picture Your Legacy tool is a wonderful way to in incorporate play into those conversations. I know exactly what you're I did the 2164 training several years ago and I have used and have a very vivid, that's a very visceral and vivid memory using those images. Anybody, even those of us that do the work day in and day out. So thank you for that. Tell me about when you're working generationally. There's the idea in family philanthropy about the generation that perhaps made the money and those that have benefited from that. And then in Gen 3, Gen 2, who's the most, of course it's different, but is there any do you see a through line or which generation is the playful one? Is there a more common answer to that than every family is different? It's a great question. And every family is different. However, I do think there is some commonality. I often see 
the very young and the older generations embrace playfulness the most. I don't know, from our vantage point, and it may be a universal truth, I think we observe that there's a carelessness at both stages of life that really inspire joy, right? When you're very young, there's an innocence. And when you're in the later stages of life, you tend to just not give a shit, right? And so- Safe perspective. Right. I mean, it really does. And so I I find that kind of the bookends of those generations really kind of hold the playful spirit the most, but it obviously varies. Yeah. I was just thinking maybe the opposite ends are when you're young, you have hardly any context. And when you're old, you have all the context. And in both right. cases, you're let yourself be a little freer. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I think free is the critical word there, right? I mean, as a child, you're nothing but free. And somewhere along the way, you let what life influence the way you react, the way you show up. And there's great parts of that. But certainly as you get older, I think you, you're able to shed that and truly be yourself and be authentic. Yeah. How much of your work is with multi-generation families? I'd say the majority. The majority of people within our network are multi-generational. We do have a fair amount of first-gen wealth creators, but the core of our work is fundamentally about family dynamics and helping families to reach consensus or acknowledge that consensus is not possible. That often is most pronounced in multi-generational families. I know you you and I have a shared colleague and also a friend who appeared on the podcast, Jen Risher, her book about talking about wealth and the conversation we got to have on the podcast about becoming suddenly wealthy from both she and David, her husband, and families that didn't grow up with a lot of wealth. And then what that meant for their kids and even their siblings, right? And their families of origin and all that's really interesting. And her book, a great tool in that regard. Jen's extraordinary. And what they've done with Half My Daff is inspiring. Their commitment to encourage others to move capital and move it with urgency and effectiveness is a conversation that the world needs. And I just really appreciate the way that they approach their philanthropy. Me too. I know they are. They've just recently wrapped up their second match round of the year, and it'll be kicking off again in March 1st. Folks, feel free to look back in the library at the Jen Risher episode to find out more about Half My Daff or just Google it. Okay, so Nick, who is the most playful person you know? That's a great question. God, the most playful person I know? I would say my cousin Peter. He is just someone who just fully sucks the marrow out of life, right? He has an incredible sense of humor. He is this bold personality, and he just lights up a room, makes everyone smile when you're around him. How often do you get to see him be in his holidays? Unfortunately, not as much. Yeah. I come from a, a big Greek family. So at the holidays, we all get together, whether it's Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving, and just make a lot of noise and, and have a lot of fun, but don't get to see a lot of each other in between those holidays. Do you think he'll be surprised that you thought of him when that question was asked? No, I think that he's fully aware of the role that he plays in the family and in the world. Absolutely. Make sure to invite Peter, right? <laughs> exactly. Always. Yes. I love it. So I'm, I was referencing before about your career and you and I met when you worked for JP Morgan and were a wealth advisor. You were advising some wealthy families and we had some intersection around some philanthropy that some of them were doing. 
I'm also aware, and I'm going to call it a game-changing moment. You tell me because it happened to you if you think that fits. You were working for a nonprofit organization in the child welfare space and then went to go work for the Gates Foundation and the Giving Pledge. I had on the same season, we've got someone from the Rockefeller Foundation on the podcast, and I was talking about what does it mean to work for a brand name philanthropy? Even people that don't work in our sector know the family name Gates, no Rockefeller, no Ford. There's a few of those. Tell me about that moment, what you thought it was going to be, how different it was, and did it seem like it was going to be a lot of fun and perhaps somewhat playful to go work at a place giving away money after having worked at a place where you had to raise the money? Again, great question and a really defining moment in my professional and and personal life. It was a really terrifying but exhilarating transition for me. I had been searching through most of my 20s to find my professional passion, to find my joy, to, to find the spark. In many ways, the role at Children's Health Forum opened my eyes to the social sector and its possibilities, but never did I imagine that someone might take a chance on me and allow me to prove what I knew to be true, that I'm capable. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation did, and in particular, Olivia Leland did, and it terrified me, but it also motivated me. It motivated me to show up each and every day and prove that I belong, to ensure that I was adding value. And it also motivated me to remind myself to honor the opportunity and to learn as much as possible. And really, I had no idea what to expect. I suspected hard work, long hours, certainly times of discomfort. But what I didn't expect and, and what I really lived into is that certainly there was a lot of joy. And I think that's true for all positions. And it's true for my current role. It's true for all the jobs that I've held. There's moments of frustration, moments of joy, moments of play. But it's the human condition. But working at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was truly a formative experience. In many ways, it's where I fell in love with the discipline of philanthropy. It showed me what's possible. It also showed me that there is a need for us to really clarify this field of donor education and donor preparedness. And I see that as the through line of my career and ultimately what led me here to the National Center for Family Philanthropy. I've been so fortunate to partner with individuals, families, and institutions for about 15 years on their bold ambitions to do good. And The through line there has been the questions that these individuals, families, and institutions are asking around how to continue to learn and grow and where to access resources that promote that learning and growth. And I heard that very loudly from members of the Giving Pledge, and it led me to ultimately want to interrogate those questions further and prompted me to move into J.P. Morgan's private bank as a senior advisor in philanthropy to look at a broader subset of the population. And fundamentally, I heard the same questions and started to look into this ecosystem of, of donor education and realize that there's a huge opportunity here to streamline the offering that is available to individuals and families in particular, and of course, institutions as well. And so that is what ultimately led me here But that moment between Children's Health Forum and the Gates Foundation was a very clarifying moment for me around how I want to invest my time and 
what the world needs from me and where I might be additive. Yeah, I love it. The giving pledge, would it be a stretch or would it feel like it fits a bit to say that was or is a way to sort of gamify philanthropy in a bit? It's a, a challenge, is a playful thing, a pledge you know, that others are making theirs in like, join us, you know, do you want to be on this? I'm, I'm thinking there could be, there's something about it. I wondered if, if it felt playful to try and engage people in that invitation to sign the pledge. It did. At its core, the Giving Pledge is a campaign and it very much started as a campaign. And in many ways, it's a community as well. But in those early years, it was very much about the numbers, right? It was about getting a critical mass of pledge members to really begin a conversation that was long overdue around the importance of giving back. The goal of getting a critical mass of billionaires to sign a commitment publicly to give away the majority of their wealth was to, in many ways, show that philanthropy is non-optional. It's part of being a wealth holder. And it's absolutely part of being a wealth holder at a certain size and scale. And so there was a, go a gamification element in many ways of looking through the Forbes list and reaching everyone on that list and challenging them to join the pledge and to make a declaration. And so there was a gamification element to it. And I think that with some broad interpretation of that, right, there's pressure that I think was a catalyst, right? It's very much about looking to your peer set and embracing what's being asked of you, what's being expected and setting some new norms and, and expectations. But again, you know, I just think back to that time and, and it just was so profound. We were building something. We were starting a conversation. We were challenging the status quo. One Anecdote, I remember so clearly the night before our launch, the pledge launched in June of 2010. And in the weeks leading up to that, the months leading up to that, I had registered the domain names for every variation of giving pledge. And the night before we were going to go live with the announcement, I was searching the internet for the leak of the news. Was there any mention of the giving pledge or any variation? And nothing. No results back on the internet. No presence of this. And overnight, it captured the world's attention. The search results went from none to being a common phrase in the English language, something that people refer to today. And that moment of watching something in real time go from idea and concept to a zeitgeist moment that has lived for years is just extraordinary. And I'm so grateful to just have a small role in it. Wow. That really paints a picture. I, I think I would say I'm one of those who can't remember when it didn't exist, even though I was in the field. Yeah, it feels like it's just kind of always been there. And you're just telling us it's not even, what's my math there? So it's 20, no, what's the math? How old is it? 2010. So it's about 13 years old. 13 years yeah. old. Yeah, love it. What's the state of the pledge right now? I, I feel like, and I wonder if I'm kind of behind on news cycles, is it intact and still growing and attracting folks? It is intact. Absolutely. The Gates Foundation still has a team of individuals dedicated to managing the community and creating learning opportunities. Shout out to the team at the Gates Foundation and the pledge continues to grow. And it's an inflection point right now for the pledge. They're really thinking about how do you continue to promote learning and bridge learning to action? And, and what does it mean to actualize on a commitment that's made? And again, it in many ways, 
goes back to what we were talking about earlier. What is the donor experience and what does it mean to provide education and preparedness for people that have already made the conscious decision to give away a substantial sum of money? And so this question of preparedness is one that I know the pledges is reflecting upon. It's something the whole field is reflecting upon. And so the pledges is very much intact and is thinking about its next season, no doubt. Let's talk about in that context, I I made some reference to an event that was held earlier in the year at the Smithsonian, one of the Smithsonian, I think it was the Natural History? American History. American History, of course, that would make sense. That was really kind of asking some of the pointed questions that philanthropy is, should continue to ask itself about, if I can recall the sort of the headline or the summary of it was, is philanthropy helping or hurting? And how can it you know, hurt less, help more, especially to solve and bridge some of the racial divides and the other equity issues going on in society? Tell me what I got right about that. And then if you would, tell us a little bit about how that all went. Absolutely. Earlier this month, the Smithsonian held their giving symposium, and I believe this was the fifth symposium. This is a symposium that really grew out of the philanthropy exhibit that is at the American History Museum, which is a partnership with the Gates Foundation, the Giving Pledge Initiative. It is supported by David Rubenstein, who is a Giving Pledge member. And the goal is to be able to tell the story of philanthropy through the extraordinary institution of the Smithsonian. And so there's a symposium that brings the conversation of philanthropy to life. And so in this year, the theme was equity and philanthropy. And we were asked to put together a panel on the intersection of equity and family philanthropy and ask the question of whether family philanthropy is catalyzing progress, impeding progress, or something in between. And so we had an incredible panel of speakers, Edgar Villanueva of Decolonizing Wealth. We had Kelly Nolan, who's a trustee emeritus of the Serdna Foundation and our board chair. And we had Liz Bonner, who's the board chair for the Hill Snowden Foundation. And we talked a lot about both the Historical constructs of inequity and injustice, Edgar led us through a bit of a history lesson around what led us here. And then we talked to the full panel about how family philanthropy embraces commitments to equity and not just embraces the commitment, but carries that commitment forward with action, both in the way that they make decisions, their governance, as well as how it shows up in their operational commitments, their partnerships with staff, with one another as board members, and certainly, perhaps most importantly, with community. And then how it actualizes in the work itself. Is equity a lens that cuts across all that you do? You know, Is it embedded in your work because you're addressing systems that have long, long been biased, racist, and promoted injustice? And so the panel really lent an opportunity and a platform for Kelly and Liz in particular to to share the stories of their family philanthropies and how they lived into a commitment of centering equity. And in many ways, it allowed us, the National Center for Family Philanthropy, to talk about our four principles of effectiveness in family philanthropy, which really is born out of research we've been doing for the past year in partnership with Open Impact, an incredible social impact firm out of the Bay Area, 
where we've been asking the question to many stakeholders, what does it mean to be effective in family philanthropy? And what we heard back was a consensus around four core principles, the principles of accountability, equity, learning, and relationships. And so the Smithsonian panel allowed us to introduce those four pillars and to double click on a conversation on equity as a core pillar of effectiveness. Do you recall or do you feel like you there was any real breakthrough moments in the conversation? This is a broad, you know, conversations like this have thankfully especially been happening over the last few years. Did anybody say, did you say, was there a moment when something, somebody said something that hadn't been said before that needed to be said? Kelly shares the story and shared the story of the Certina Foundation and the Andrus family who are the family members who endowed the foundation. She told the story of the commitment of the Certina Foundation to really embrace equity as a central part of their strategy and the resistance that some of the family members had towards that, um, which became a very public debate. It was in the news. And you know, Kelly shared with us that it takes time and it takes patience and it takes persistence. And she told the story of how the family continued the conversation and realized that change is going to happen over periods of time and that there needs to be, again, a commitment to continue to have that conversation and a patience around ultimately how that change is going to appear and when. Yeah. It seems like this kind of issuing of grace in a spirit of urgency is this important balance to keep striking. Grace can't encourage slowing down, but it can allow for kind of the reality of some pacing in the context of something that's urgent and essential. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, we also talked about just generally how emotionally charged the conversation on equity has become within family systems and more broadly speaking in the world. And that it's an interesting observation that often you know, families who might differ in their opinion on the word actually have very similar beliefs around the principles undergirding the word. And so it goes back to the importance of conversation in many ways to destigmatize words, to be able to talk about the why behind a word and to really get to a place of intention and to be able to have that conversation in a family, again, where there is often a lot of emotional trauma, a lot of, you know, fraught relationships is challenging, but there is an opportunity in every system to, you know, reset, to be honest, to lead with candor and to lead with openness and commit to really listening and ensuring that everyone is heard. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of distinct, you know, words matter. And I think we're all clearer and clearer on that all the time. And sometimes the quote unquote wrong word slips out. And then what can we do? What can we do to learn in that moment? How have you used play at NCFP as its leader? Let's take it either way or both ways with staff and then with your members. So 
the way I interpret play is often to define it as joy. And, you know, that shows up in many forms. And so certainly with the staff of the National Center for Family Philanthropy, we want to make sure and commit to having joy be present and, and be part of the experience here. And so, you know, it shows up in, in many different ways. And, you know, some of that is is the levity of the conversations we have in between meetings. And some of that is reminding ourselves of the absurdity of the ecosystem in which we operate at times, you know, this disproportionate amount of wealth that often families hold and, and the challenges that come with it. But for us, it's really about centering kind of the levity of the work itself. And so that promotes a sense of playfulness. And I would say the same with the families. It's incredibly joyous to be in community with families. You know, families really do have special bonds, as I mentioned earlier. And it's beautiful to be in a boardroom or someone's living room and watch family members connect with one another in a joyful way. I'll give you one anecdote. I was in the Pacific Northwest a few months ago facilitating a retreat which ended with a family staff dinner. And apparently the family has a tradition of writing and performing songs when one of their staff members departs. And so sure enough, in the middle of this dinner, out came the speakers and the board chair and his brother sang a wonderful rendition of a Beach Boys classic that had been rewritten to honor one of the staff members. And I remember just looking on from afar and thinking like this is the playfulness that makes the work more palatable at times right this is the thing that makes you laugh and say at the end of the day we're all human and we all can enjoy you know being silly together and i think that is something that we all need to hold on to in the seriousness of social impact and it's always nice when the bosses do the silly thing right it kind of makes it all it makes everything else possible <laughs> That. So to the degree that the family in the sort of the structure there, right, or the client or the bosses and the leaders of that organization for the staff to get to be serenaded by them, is pretty, that's pretty special. So let's uh, grab our ice cream. I know you have to step away and get yours out of the freezer, which I always appreciate because mine starts to melt. I have mine close by. I'm going to tell you all about Taharka Brothers. And I even in my my box with the six pints, they sent some of their collateral. And you guys, the Taharka Brothers is based in Baltimore, not too far from where Nick lives and works. And they are a social enterprise ice cream company that has, when that means for those of you not familiar with that term, sort of a, a double bottom line, both being in business to provide a product or service, in this case, ice cream, and to be making the world a better place. So you all are familiar. Ben and Jerry's has sponsored some of our episodes. And of course, they do that on a grand scale. Taharka Brothers is a regional, a local and regional Baltimore firm, but they ship nationwide. So please check them out. And they sent all sort of versions of chocolate because they, because I communicated to them, that's what both Nick and I preferred. So I'm having something called Chocolate Love, which I think is chocolate ice cream. Oh, with chocolate cookie crumb swirl. And then they have a cool phrase. They've got a, a hand holding a microphone, megaphone made out of an ice cream cone. It says, awaken more than just your taste buds. And I'm going to read you also from here. At Taharka, we use our award-winning small batch gourmet ice cream to serve up delicious scoops and inspire social change. 
to Harker Brothers is proudly made in Baltimore by a diverse group of Baltimoreans. We hope each scoop inspires cultural understanding, economic empowerment, and community engagement. We believe in a more just and equitable world and realize it starts with us by focusing on personal development in the context of an employee-owned company. We hope to model both individual and collective effort that it takes to improve our community. So, impact and ice cream. So, which flavor did you choose out of the six, Nick? I got the chocolate ice cream with a chocolate cookie crumb swirl. Oh, my God. And I picked the same I, thing. I, yeah, I couldn't resist. I am a chocolate fanatic. It is and really ice. I didn't even wait. I took a first bite. It's so chocolatey. Yeah, this is incredible. So, so they are your hometown, one of your hometown ice cream companies, Social Enterprise. I know they recently got a contract for the Baltimore Ravens where they are providing the ice cream at the stadium. They are doing well on a great trajectory. And as I mentioned to the audience, they are shipping nationwide. We'll post their info in the notes. So take another bite before I ask you to speak a little bit, because I always eat while the person's talking. That doesn't seem fair. Tell me about what's the scoop on how you came to care. Do you remember a moment as a young man, as a boy, where you had this sense of responsibility and connecting this to the needs of others? That is a big question, Christine, and a great question. My origin story really begins and persists with family. As I mentioned, I come from a, a large and loud first-generation Greek family who really taught me that community is everything. My family taught me to care with every ounce of my being for everyone in our lives. And they really are my inspiration. My family always made sure that everyone is fed, everyone is heard, everyone is loved. And it really is about community. And my mother in particular, she emphasized service. And I have early memories of my brother and I giving of our time, attending church and community events on weekends. And I have very vivid memories of the collection plate in church going around. And instead of my mom putting money on behalf of the family for us, she'd roll up a dollar and give it to me, roll up a dollar and give it to my brother and make sure that we began the physical act of giving. And we talked about that and what it meant. And so for us, it just became the norm. And as I started to grow up, I really started to fully embrace an understanding around the importance of community and live into the truth that we're all interconnected and that the survival of one is dependent on the survival of all. And one of the most formative experiences for me early on in my life was going back to the village where my grandfather was born in Greece, in rural Greece, and spending a summer with my great aunt and great uncle who spoke very little English in a very rural village in Greece. And really watching how the members in that community took care of each other, knocked on each other's door, made sure that they were okay, helped them out when it was needed, mourned together, celebrated together, shared their crops with each other. In the course of a summer, I went to a wedding was extremely joyous, a funeral, extremely sad, and everything in between. And it just really 
cemented into my DNA the importance of promoting community and caring about someone other than yourself and caring about someone's experience other than your own. And so I was really drawn to service as a, a core value, went to Villanova University, who really embeds a commitment to service and volunteered in college, went into Philadelphia to soup kitchens and joined campus ministry and really spent some time giving back in whatever way I could. And that really set me on the path. Yeah. Wow. It sure did. That's beautiful. I have said, and I've thought and said before that I think, and this is of course a generalization by definition, but if there's three types of people, there's people that see a problem in the world and, or maybe they don't see the problems in the world beyond kind of themselves and their family, which is a fine, that is fine work and focus. Then there's those who see problems in the world and kind of hope someone's working on it. And then there's a the few that see problems in the world and say, what can I do? And I think you and I, you've just described that about yourself and you and I work in a sector filled with people like that. And your members, you can be rich and you don't have to be philanthropic. So the, the folks that self-select into membership in your organization and become members of FCSP, like they are by definition saying, what can I do? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a conscious choice. I always say philanthropy is a conscious choice, and it's a choice that has to be made time and time again. It's mm. not a one-time decision. It's something that you continue to double down on, and the people in our network are making that choice over and over again. I love it. Well, with that, we can probably eat the rest of our ice cream off camera. <laughs> Great. A little more civil. But thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for joining in the conversation, and really, thank you for all the work you're doing day in and day out out in the world. Thank you, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks. Take right. care. Stay tuned for Double Scoop, two delicious insights from today's episode. All right, the Double Scoop from that fantastic conversation with Nick Tedesco, which is our two delicious insights from the episode. First of all, I was thinking it was really interesting. I hadn't really thought before until our conversation about the idea of donor preparedness. I'd certainly thought about donor education before, which is one of the things that NCFP does. But donor preparedness was really interesting to think about. How do you get ready to give away money and give away money effectively? And that's one of the things that his organization does and really that he's been involved with in most of his career at J.P. Morgan, when he was at the Gates Foundation, and now at NCFP. So that's a really interesting idea to, to consider there. And secondly, boy, he talked a lot about joy, and I, I especially liked the um, image that came to mind when he talked about the joy of working with families, watching families interact, and then the joy and playfulness of the, the generations at the end of the two spectrums, the youngest people and the youngest people in the family and the oldest people in the family, how they come to the work of philanthropy with more whimsy and sort of a freedom that is really helpful to everybody, including the folks probably in the middle. So thanks so much uh, for listening. And uh, we're just so glad you're part of the Playful family. Thank you for listening to the Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. If you want to stay playful as you tackle the world's problems and get all the scoop on today's tastiest ice cream, click to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can learn more about Christine on LinkedIn and her work with changemakers worldwide at impactfulinc.com. That's impactful with two L's, I-N-C.com.